I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. My guest is Dr. Salah Hassan. He is the founding director of the Africa Institute, as well as holding a variety of academic positions, including at Cornell University, where he's been a long time, as well as Brandeis and other places. He has curated a lot of exhibitions, including one that was very important to me and influenced my own curatorial practice and some of the choices I made. The idea is that, okay, if you don't, as Jimo Achebe, he said, if you don't like other people's story, then go and write your own story. And so that was our motive, is to write our own story, but not to write it in a separatist, ethnocentrist way or Eurocentrics, in a way. We're not creating another center. We're arguing for our share in terms of this larger narrative of art history. We'll get started. I'd love to start off by asking you about your origin story. You just referenced that you've been at Cornell since 1994, so more than 25 years. How did you find your way there? I'm originally from Sudan. Uh, I grew up in a city that is now part of the southern Sudan after the split. It's called Juba. That's where I was born and then moved north. And I studied in Khartoum or Omdurman rather, which is because the capital is a tripartite city that has Khartoum, Omdurman, Khartoum North. And then I went to the University of Khartoum. I studied philosophy. Then I got a scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I can see that you actually studied there too. Yes. Your undergrad. So, <laughs> so I studied there and I actually, uh, with Renata Hollod, another professor called Henry Glassy. So I was kind of combining between folklore and art history, a group of people that that's where I worked, actually. My early degree was in actually basically focused on art of African Islam. That's where I wrote my first uh, my dissertation and it's published in a book. It's called The Art of Islamic Literacy among the House of Northern Nigeria. That's where I did field work. But it was a tester for me just to do ethnographic research and manage to go and do field work. So it focused on house architecture and calligraphy. And then because of my background as a painter, I actually wanted to study contemporary uh, African art, which was not offered at the time at UPenn. There was no person in the art history department that does that. But I managed to do it through with, I don't know if you know Renato Hollow, but she was the major person who's an Islamist art historian that helped advise me. And then I got my first job at the State University of New York in Buffalo. Then I moved to Cornell as a Getty Fellow in residence. And that's how I started with as a joint appointment between Africana, where my full I mean, time as a line is there, but also the history of art. Which, you know, gradually I end up chairing art history, chairing Africana. And so so my focus of research, if you're curious about that, is really 
modernism and how modernity is articulated outside the West. So it's an African modernism and in contemporary art. And that has been my, my focus since then. It's so interesting because, as you referenced, I studied at the University of Pennsylvania. I did my undergraduate degree there. And I took a lot of classes in art history, but I didn't end up with an art history degree as an undergraduate. I did in graduate school because what I wanted to study wasn't really offered there either. <laughs> and um, so I ended up with an undergraduate degree in European history, and my focus was on modern revolutions. And so I would pick a time period, and then I would study the the history, the literature, and and the art history of that time. And when I was there, the the European history department was the most progressive and allowed me to have that kind of interdisciplinary study, which they really weren't doing then. And then I, I went on actually to CUNY, um, the City University of New York, and did my master's in art history. So we have interesting overlaps. And one other thing that I'll say is that when I was doing my graduate work, I was very interested in Islamic art, and I wanted that to be my area of focus. And I was dissuaded from that by my Islamic art professor for a couple of different reasons. But the the idea of the the calligraphy within Islamic art was was what I wanted to study. So who else was teaching beside Renato Holod at the time at Penn? At Penn, um, Christine Poggi was one of my main professors and Dr. Brownlee. So it, I really enjoyed my my art history classes a lot. When I started at Penn, I, I definitely was not planning to go into the field. I thought I would go to law school. And so art history was kind of a, a passion, but I, I didn't know it could be a profession. Well, yeah. now you're in the profession. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very good. Very good. So I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit more about this idea of African modernism and the space that you've created for yourself within the field. And I'll, I'll go back to my studies for a second to say that you know, while I wanted to study Islamic art for my graduate work, I ended up studying video art, or, or that's what I wrote my graduate thesis on, because I felt like there was an opportunity there to do something that a lot of people hadn't focused on. And I wonder if that helped you pick your area of focus too. You know, the interest in modernity came from my own interest as in contemporary art in Sudan. I have been my wishes actually at the time is to study, you know, art, uh, fine art. And I was accepted in the college at the time that I applied for universities. But the family preference was to go into medicine and science. So I did have two years of study in the University of Khartoum. I could have been a medical doctor or a dentist, or, but then from the second year, I just decided not to. So that's what made me... Uh, that is short of really going to the College of Fine Applied Art, which has a long history in Sudan. And it was the major school that graduated many of the master modernists in Sudan itself. I ended up studying philosophy, which I thought is the closest. But then luckily when I finished my uh, undergraduate, I got a job at the College of Fine and Applied Art in Khartoum to study art history and aesthetics. So the, I decided to do my graduate studies on this field and I came to the US and then I was accepted at the time in different institutions, and but then I chose UPenn because of an advice of friends. But then when I ended up, it was a great art history. It was a great institution at the time. Mm -hmm. 
that had, even though African studies was not really big at Penn at the time, but there were so many great theories. I remember Arjuna Padurai, the Kopitov, uh, several people in anthropology, and then within folklore, folk life, for example, there was Henry Grassi, who was interested in uh, Henry Glass. He was, he was in Indiana, and I think he's a retired professor who was also work on architecture. So I managed to supplement my interest in Africa by taking classes that benefit me theoretically. But the biggest question at the time is that the study of African art has focused on the classical tradition that's known as the traditional African art, mostly sculpture from West Africa. That was mm -hmm. came to be known. But that was very troubling to me as someone who knows that Africa is modern too. Africa is part of the modern world. Africa has contributions to modernity in all kinds of fields, even though it may be tied to colonialism. It may have this kind of intersection with colonialism and with European modernity, which is something that I've always called for to say that, yeah, there is an African modernism, but it's important to separate modernities across the world because of factors of that Africa can no longer be looked at as a geographic entity. It is, it is a global presence by facts of diaspora that was either through forced enslavement of African people into North America and other places, but also migration to Europe, colonialism, all of those things make it inseparable when we discuss what we call modernity. And it's certainly influenced by colonialism, but something about modernity in Africa that's separated from others is that it actually evolved in the context of decolonization itself. So for me, I felt there was an element that is actually missing when you take a course in contemporary or modern art, you're just bombarded by European modernism. And one of the things that struck you is, is the thinking towards Africa in the context of the European modern has always been on primitivism or within the context of primitivism. So you end up studying Picasso and others and the influence of African art. And of course, you're probably very familiar with the Picasso statements about African art. That has been a subject of critique by many people, including Simon Gekandi of Princeton, who wrote a very uh, great essay on this, and many other people. That There was a lot of critique now of, of what he called primitivism. Because at yeah. that time, I remember when I arrived in the US the, to study the show that is called, I think it's called the uh, Primitivism in Modern Art, yes. in 20th century art, the affinity between the tribal and the modern. And it was a great show, even though it was a, a, a kind of a liberal, a kind of a step, you know, forward to, to acknowledgement of art object, not as just kind of primitive object, but they are object of art too. But it's still, there's a critique of that show, of course, written by so many people, James Clifford, others, is that it was the tribal end up being an appendix to, to European art history. So that's, that's what troubled me as somebody who coming from Sudan knowing there was a great colleague that I taught in, knowing that there are a lot of amazing artists like Ibrahim al-Salahi, Kamala Ibrahim Ishaq, Ahmed Muhammad Shibrain, Osman Wagiala, those who studied in Khartoum, but then also during the colonial period and went to Europe and studied at the Slade Camberwell College Central School and went back to Sudan and taught at that college and became part of the larger African modernism or Arab modernism of the world because, of course, the uniqueness of Sudan is that it was at the intersection of the Arab and the African world. And it's a very hybrid place. And, and it's a place of the a corridor to Africa, but it's also a place where all of these elements, African, Arab, Islamic, all kind of mixed up. 
created a very unique culture. So that awareness of the absence of, of me or my own or African modernity in the narrative of art history has been troublesome. So what I tried to do, you know, basically I did my dissertation in a way that is, you know, kind of address issues of doing research. And in fact, I did it deliberately to go to Nigeria because the expectation at the time is that you should go back to your own country. Like as if any European or American scholar, uh, it's legitimate to study the non-West. But for yeah. us, is that your target, you're always directed to study your own. I said, why not go to Nigeria? And to study the art of Islam or African Islam in that place because of my affinity with West Africa, so Sudanese, you know, Islam, the link with West Africa has been great because of the Hajj routes to, to Mecca. Many West African cross the Sahara to Sudan, cross the Red Sea to Mecca. Many have settled there. So the context of the Hausa and the Fulani culture has been very fascinating to me, especially in the area of Islamic magic. I did that, but then because there was an influence of that culture on modern artists, especially Sudanese art, where many, especially Ibrahim of Salah, and I tried to explore that element. So in my mind, there is that, and that's what I started pursuing, is the idea of the absence of modernism. And even when it's discussed, you know, and, and at that time, not a single course on contemporary African art. The books that were available, maybe the books of Uli Bayer on contemporary African art, that's probably the only single text that existed at the time. And then there was another book by the late Gene Kennedy on contemporary African art. And that was it, nothing else. Interestingly, in the 1960s, there was a lot of interest, especially at the era of decolonization, in contemporary African art. And, and actually came from very strange places. And I would say strange in a way because it shows uh, at the time there was an interest in Africa from some public Western institution. But the most interesting was the Harmon Foundation which at the time had a great show. And then I came to to realization that it was at that time, the 60s, that the Harmon Foundation, which actually one of the most important foundation that supported the, the Harlem Renaissance at the time of decolonization, actually became interested in contemporary African art creativity. So all of this element entered together at the time that I was studying, which is late 80s at the University of Pennsylvania, that made me generate this interest in me in trying to address that gap. And there were very few of us who are mostly of African, myself, Nigerians, uh, scholars such as Okwe and Wazor, who was a young man at the time, the late Okwe, and then later on Chika Okeke, Odwebwebe. So there were many, many, like there were several, sorry, few of us who became interested in this. So that's the beginning of the interest. It's not seeing yourself or seeing creativity of Africa that is modern, that is contemporary within the context and the text of art history. That kind of absence was the driving force to pursue this. So I often like to ask sort of the obvious question because I think it's important to have a record of things that maybe are obvious but sometimes go unstated. You, What does it feel like to not be seen within this space? Well, of course, at the time, if you come with a certain level of political consciousness, knowing literature that dealt with the critique 
of colonialism, which now at the time I was studying in the 80s or 90s became what came to be known as post-colonialism. So at that time, it was post-structuralism, deconstruction and so forth. But then there was some of us who read Fanon, some of us who read Du Bois, some of us who read or listened to Malcolm X or read his autobiography or became aware of the civil rights movement. So there was a, a level of consciousness, especially in the 70s and 60s in Africa, that connect us with the larger debate on colonialism and decolonization. And the civil rights in the United States, Black power has been an inspiring force. So this was something that we knew, uh, some of us knew before we came to the United States because of a certain level of polit political consciousness that was part of the whole period. If you look at Africa at the time, student movement, political parties, national liberation, all of them are in what came to be known as the idea of decolonization or post-colonialism. So people were aware of that. So not to be seen, it will create a trauma as, as some people may argue, but it was actually, will lead you to resist, but also will lead you to be more proactive. How do you do that? There are several ways. Of course, there is the political struggle for equality and so forth, and that's, and that requires some, of course, uh, sacrifices, but it was easy to do because it's the right thing to do you know, in terms of pro protest. But how do you really transcend that? Transcend that by the obvious way is to create your, your own narrative that is theoretically grounded. So for us, the study of Western art history has been crucial in a sense that you master the tool <laughs> of the master, so-called. And then you understand the narrative of art history as a field. And of course, not everything produced by the West is bad or always colonial, because when you think about theories like Marxism, you know, Karl Marx, Engels, you know, all of these people, they were, of course, anti-colonial. There was also a, a consciousness even within Europe itself that was anti-anti-colonial too. I mean, whether it's labor movement, whether it's others, where there was also sympathy from that. So you'll understand that the West is not kind of pure. The other thing is also the realization that the country like the United States, when you come in, uh, you look at it from outside, it's imperial, it was the Vietnam War, it was the era of you know uh, all of that destruction and, and intervention in Latin America and other places with the wrong side, with the people who are on the wrong side of history. But then you come to the United States, you realize, well, there's also resistance to this among mm -hmm. African-Americans, especially African-Americans. And others, you know, the, the 60s proved that there is so much to learn from the experience of the United States. And you actually realize it. Then you realize, actually, even in art movements, there was a sort of a circular movement, which is what Paul Gilroy called, called it the, the Atlantic, you know, the Black Atlantic. You know, the idea that culture traveled from Africa with the Atlantic and back to Africa or Europe. And that almost like the motif of Serge, you realize that jazz and blues has been influenced by Africa and that also American jazz and blues influenced South African music and other. So that realization of the dynamics of the world at the time make you become proactive in trying to kind of theorize. I mean, there is a body of literature that has been ignored and is only now being excavated. Du Bois was there for us. Fanon was there for us to understand what culture means in the context of decolonization. So that provided the theory to try to think about 
creating your own narrative. So in a nutshell, it, it, it wasn't a traumatic experience. It was an experience that pushed us to resist, pushed us to build our own narrative. And that result in institutionalizing this. And that's why, for example, myself, Okwi, Oluwebebech, Chika, Okeke, decided to start this journal that was an initiative by Okwi and Wezor that's called Inca Journal of Contemporary African Art. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, so so that's part of this. The idea is that, okay, if you don't, as Chinua Achebe, he said, if you don't like other people's story, then go and write your own story. Yes. And so that was our motive, is to write our own story, but not to write it in a separatist, ethnocentrist way, or Eurocentric in a way. We're not creating another center. We're arguing for our share in terms of this larger narrative of art history. And that needs institutionalization. Luckily, some of us got into higher education as professors that helped us to reproduce ourselves. I mean, before us, of course, there are African-American scholars such as, you know, Richard Powell, Duke, Michael Harris, Kelly Jones. There was there was also a generation of African-Americans who were also entering into the field from the other side uh, of African-American. But these are people who from the beginning were also conscious of these linkages between African and African-American art from the Harlem Renaissance, even earlier days when you think about artists like Meadow. Warwick Fuller and her Africa rising or Egypt rising. There were you see these motifs that come from Africa, Egypt, ancient Egypt, and all of those things are flourishing there. There was also these festivals of Pan-African from the 1956, which is basically one step further and building on the earlier Pan-African Congresses that brought African diaspora African with. Africans in the continent. Then there was all these Pan-African festivals, the Dakar one in 1966, the Festival of Negro World Art that brought all of these people, Langston Hughes, among others, into the continent. They brought African-Americans. There was the Festac in Nigeria, 77. There was Algiers, which is the Pan-African Festival, 1969, that had the chip, had all of these. The Black Panthers were there. So there was all of these intersections that were very helpful to think that, well, we're not only trying to insert a new narrative, there is also a legacy of a narrative, a legacy of history that can also be mobilized while theorizing what it means to to talk about the African modern. Thank you for that. It's a very honest question and a, a very inclusive answer. I'm grateful for it. Well, thank you. We have some artists in common that I think we love, maybe. I don't know if you can use that word, but but I do. Okay, great. And one that really um, speaks out to me from your CV is is David Hammonds. I'd love to ask you to talk about the exhibition that you did with David. This was part of an exhibition. It's actually an official participation of the U.S. in the Dakar Biennale. It was, I think, in 2004. And we call it Three Artists, Three Projects. And the idea is really to try to bring three, you know, diaspora artists, David Hammond from the U.S., Maria Magdalena Campos, an Afro-Cuban who at the time was in Boston. Now she's a professor at Vanderbilt University. 
and then Pamela Z, who's a new media artist. Yeah. And and the, the choices were deliberate. It's to try to bring people who represent the diversity of the African diaspora. And at the same time, the diversity of the media that they work in. You know, David Hammonds is probably the most, for sure, in my view, I think it is the most important American artist ever. I wouldn't say just African-American. I, I wouldn't say even, even, even globally. Yeah, I think he's a, he's an original. He's authentic in his ideas, and he is one of the most open-minded artists, but the most witty and most intelligent. I mean, I can't even language cannot you know uh, help me describe. You know, it, it's funny that when we talk about American art, you always find the David Hammonds and others. They always kind of imprison in this section or a paragraph or, or chapters within a survey of American art as, well, American art and identity politics. I mean, as if David, that's all his, you know. Yes, the Black experience is very important, but he was not obsessed with this idea. He's someone who brought a level of sophistication, yes, infused with the Black experience, but then it's a level of awareness of all the history of conceptualism. If when you think about just his fascination with Duchamp and the found object and the ready material, all of those things and the ready-made. So all of these things, it shows that he's aware of this and even much more. So for us, bringing David, bringing Maria Magdalena, who brings in the Afro-Cuban experience mixed with a sophistication of video work and, and knowledge of contemporary art. She's also a painter. Then you have Pamela Ziu, who is a new media artist that works with sound and has her own performances. So the project, when I worked on it, and I worked with a colleague, Cheryl Finley, who teaches at Cornell too. So we, we thought about it. What do you do within a biennial? It's very difficult to do one artist and, and to say, okay, that's enough, or to do three to bring it. So that was a good thing to try to bring this kind of a three artists in a minimal way, and each one with one project. We didn't want to make it a big David did his major performance, which was a sheep prophet. Of course, it continues in his whole critique of commodification of art. And it was a, an important work. It's called sheep prophet, or what they call it, tumbula in French, tumbula de mouton. And it was a performance that took us away from the white gallery space. And I remember when I, we traveled, and, and David is, of course, an interesting artist. And he said to me, you know, I'm not about proposal. I'm not going to write a proposal, but I'll travel with you. And so we traveled to Senegal together. And he started exploring the city. And he's one of those people who just walk around like he used to work around in Harlem. Like, like in, yeah. He remind me with Stanley Brown, the, the, the black yes. yes. artist. And there is an affinity there, you know, and I'll tell you another story that I almost brought them together, but but fate didn't allow it. That would have been amazing. Yeah, because they're about walking and exploring and just being these, a mixture of voyaging or voyeurs <laughs> and also exploring the world around them. And what, so David is like that. So in, in Dakar, he came to this idea of the sheep province. Why? The sheep? He's a very important animal that's associated with the holiday, the Islamic holiday of sacrifice, based on the whole Abrahamic myths of uh, Ishmael and Abraham, or we call it in Islam, Ismail and Ibrahim. He just decided to do a sheep prophet, which is, of course, a continuation of his interest, if you remember the blizzard ball sale, 
in New York, the performance uh, in Washington Square. And so this became part of that. And it's interesting because he decided to take this raffle ticket that distributed in Medina, which is the oldest part of Dakar. And then we come in the afternoon for about three or four days or for six days, maybe that he made us buy the sheep <laughs> with the money that we were supposed to commission him from. And then he raffled two sheep a day. The in- interesting thing is that it became a spontaneous play. He was, he distanced himself from it, stood as like all of us and Onluka, and people took owner of this. Students and others who distribute this using mega microphones that are used in political rallies and going through the neighborhood distributing. And in the afternoon, people gather to pick the ruffles. Then comes the praise songs that are in Wolof. Then came dance, then comes music. Then our drummers came in. So it became a festive occasion that took us away, which is really beside the whole issue of commodification of the art or art or whatever, but his, his own idea of moving away from the white cube. Although like any other artist, he, he did exhibit and he does exhibit in a white cube. But that was the success of this project. The same thing with Magda, which was in another way, she transformed an old factory that is, you know, kind of a textile factory into an amazing installation. And the same with the with Pamela Z, who used two sides, a performance at the National Gallery and then another a sound piece in the house uh, of, of slaves in Gori Island. And it was a piece that enacted the sounds of the enslaved population when they are in that. It's interesting if you visit the Gori side, there's a place where children are kept, there's a place where women are kept, there's a place where men are kept. And it's, of course, known to be having what they call it, the door of no turn. So it was a sampling, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. And we managed to produce a good book through Prestel, in which we try to theorize the work, but it's also to provide a good biography of the artist, but also something on it. And I would say it was among the the few projects that I'm really proud of. And proud of my friendship with all the three and, and Magda, and also just David himself, especially. That has been a, an amazing opener for other projects I did. And I will just end with one thing, is that I actually had him and Stanley Brown and Ibrahim al-Salih in one show in Amsterdam in different sites. And the theme was called Crossing. Inspired, of course, these crosses that you see in Amsterdam, the three ones that are symbol of Amsterdam. But I thought of it as a place where all of these people crossed. David through the diaspora into Europe, Ibrahim through the diaspora also into the UK, and then Stanley from Suriname into the Dutch. And the three have this conceptual element to their work. Unfortunately, Stanley Brown died maybe a month before we opened the show. And it was he was like David. It was not easy to get to them. And yes. when they agree, you really you feel the, the, the energy in them. And he both of them were enthusiastic to meet. I would say that is the reason that Stanley Brown agreed is because of David. Yes. He's in that show. And so to give you an idea, we had a lot of samples of Stanley Brown, you know, about walking and measuring. And then Ibrahim al-Salahi, we had some of his early drawing, mostly in black and white. And then David did, we exhibited his famous uh, Holy Bible. That was a homage 
or a critique or whatever you call it of Duchamp. So interesting. I brought up David Hammonds because of my long-term love of his work and him. And I don't know if you know, but when I opened the Aspen Art Museum, I, I opened with a show that was called David Hammonds, Eve Klein, Eve Klein, David Hammonds. And it was about the diversity of each individual artist practice and the points of connection. And so making connections between David's body prints and Klein's anthropometries, between David's Kool-Aid drawings and Klein's monochrome, between David's basketball drawings and Klein's fire paintings, and then, of course, the performative elements in both of their practices. And it was probably my favorite exhibition I've ever done and the one that I'm most proud of. And it connects a lot with what you're talking about in terms of the, the range of the practice. That's really wonderful. I wish you have a, a, a catalog to share. I, I do. I do. I will send it to you. <laughs> yeah, because that, what you said is really important because that's the kind of art history. That's the kind of exhibitions that I really wish will dominate. I mean, of course, uh, things have changed a great deal since the brutal killing, you know, of George Floyd. I mean, museums now scrambling to hire black curators and scrambling to do. And it's interesting when you look at the new museum, suddenly had these two successive major, major retrospective of the most interesting artists and a great American artist like, uh, you know, Faith Ringgold and Robert Colescott. And it's interesting for me, these are people I taught long time ago when I started teaching. I was in Venice when I saw the work when he represented, I think it was in 2001. I'm not sure, but, but there was Robert Cole Scott there. And it was fascinating to me because I taught him just looking at the work as images. And I know at the time his work is ambiguous. Even many black artists are not happy with his work because of the satire in it and so forth and uh, representation that is almost like a Jim Crow era of Black people. And so it was like the reception of Carl Walker's work in the early period. Of yes. course, since people have changed a great deal. But it's great that now there is this interest. But I wish there was also more that does not just highlight their career, which is good. What 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 the new museum did is it is a discovery. I mean, I'm, I'm actually surprised that Faith Ringgold would be a discovery for anybody. Because she's there. She's been there. She's in New York. Of course. Of she course. was one of the most important people in, in performance art. The same thing with, with Robert Colescott. I mean, and, and, and many others, you know, Adrian Piper, all of those people, of course, deserve that recognition. But these shows that brings them into dialogue with their contemporaries is very important. I would love to, to look at what you produce. Thank you. That it was, it was from 2014. And, as you can imagine, it was a very complicated show to do, both in terms of convincing Rote Rote and, and Daniel Mulcahy about Klein's participation, and then also David. And the show was incredible. You just described really eloquently a couple of the projects that you've done. And I'd love to ask you to talk about something that people ask me if they feel confident, which is how do you make the choices that you make? There's so many incredible artists. And of course, it's about the circumstance, the location, the timing. But what would you say characterizes 
the artists that you're interested in? Do you think there's there's something that you could point to? You know, it's it's interesting. Ask me because because in different shows there were different ways of handling them. But to give you an example, the choice in Dakar, of course, was motivated by, of course, my own interest in the three artists, my own so-called discovery of the work, and kind of enamored by it, and also really realized the depths and so forth. To, overall, I like artists who do beautiful work. <laughs> I don't like plain works. I mean, I like the witty type of artist, the one yeah. that has also a sense of humor. Me too. Like, like David. So these yeah. are things that I feel important. I don't like these kind of plain <laughs> artists that sometimes you just pass the work and you don't see anything. I mean, there's a lot of, plenty of them in Bayanians. But I can give you like the example of the show that I did in Venice. It's called Authentic Eccentric. Of course, any show will have to have a, a central idea to connect it together. Then, of course, and it comes sometimes through looking at artists' work and being familiar with them, and you see, well, these people connect around this idea. And then, but there's also the politics of it, especially if you're coming from an unwestern global South perspective, you're always aware of the fact that is when you do something in any context, it has to be good. It has to be done with the, you know, the most up-to-date cutting-edge standards, and it has to also show the depth. So because you rarely have these opportunities. So for me, that's the motivation sometimes, to try to come up with a very strong representation that can argue for my stand in terms of the co-evenness of modernity and contemporaneity and the globalities of that kind of experience. How do I push that? So that's politics is one thing. You don't have it in the front, but you are aware of it to try to see you have to have a good catalog, well-written, becomes also a source of knowledge. So while you're doing a show, you have to think about building or creating knowledge production because the excuse has always of, of exclusion when you say, well, why didn't you? Like even Harald Zeman, I had an argument with him. Why have one or two African artists? He said, oh, I don't know. But then I said to him, you know, God bless his soul. He said, I traveled, you know, I traveled, but I couldn't get the chance. I said, come with us. Come to the continent. And he came in yeah. 2000. He came to Dakar to see the Dakar Biennial. And that is when we announced our initiative in Venice, which was called the Project Africa in Venice. And so I, I'm just briefly going to say to you is that what we did, of course, myself and Olwogui, we did that show. And I like the collaboration because all of us know something, but not everything. And it's good to do it, you know, collectively. We had, of course, an institution that we built, which is called the Forum for African Art, supported by an initiative at the Ford Foundation from a dear friend at the time, who happened to be an African from the Congo, Damien Pono. There was also Margaret Wilkerson. There were several people who are African-American within the organization, Courtney Martin, other people who helped us at the Ford to get the funding. So that's one thing that we secured, and we were lucky to do that. I, I'm saying these details because it's important to understand Nothing just comes out of a coincidence or out of the blue. It's a struggle, but yes. it's also having people that assist you along the way and recognizing and their contribution is very important. We got the funding based on the concept, but in creating that show, I thought, okay, this is an opportunity, but don't overwhelm it. Don't go do a big show. So we selected few artists, each with one project. We asked them to propose. We selected 
people from William Bosho from South Africa, a white South African artist, Bernie Sell, a black South African woman artist, oh, yeah, Maria yeah, Magdalena, an Afro-Cuban, and Zainab Sadira, and then Gottfried Donko, and Yinka Shonibari. So I thought the group at the time that were not well known, but it was Yinka. So I thought about, okay, we have to have a hook. This Western world will only come for the recognized name. So Yinka agreed to work with us. We commissioned each artist. We have the funding. And they did an amazing, amazing project. Each of them did. I remember that was the first probably video by that video work that it's called Snow White that uh, Bernie did. Yeah. Gottfried Dunker did something about blacks in the Victorian, British, Victoria, England. Uh, Zainab Sadira did something that is very autobiographical about her own upbringing, Algeria, women in her you know, family. Maria Magdalena did this famous work that was actually commissioned by MoMA at the time. It's called Spoken Softly by, with MoMA, People Without History. And that I think now it's in the collection of the Ontario Gallery or someplace in Canada. And Yinka did his travel, which is these astronauts in so-called African fabric. And the major theme is to think about conceptualism in Africa. So in the selection, I wanted to tell you the politics. The politics is gender representation. So we were conscious of that fact. So there were enough women, enough men, maybe three, four, or maybe three, three. There was also Rashid Qureshi who bring in another, is an Algerian artist who brought another element of working with Islamic element, calligraphy, all of those things, but also conceptual. So it was to show the diversity of, of conceptualism as an idea outside the West. That was a major. So it's called African conceptualism in and out of Africa. But the selection, gender-wise, materiality, we really try to do something that is moving, poetics, aesthetically appealing, because this was our first chance. And you sometimes, as they say, you don't have a second chance. Then we produce a document. And I, I don't know if you have it, but if not happy to share it with you, it's called Authentic Eccentric, the book that is, that has been the motto or the way that I operated, is to have theoretical works on the works and then another section on the artists themselves. So the, most of the catalog that I produce in that, including Unpacking Europe and, and also the work in Dakar, 3x3, three three, Diaspora, Memory and Place. So that was the, the, as I said, there's a politics to it, but there's also my own aesthetics and the artists that I love. I also just like nice artists. I just generally, I work with nice artists. I, I don't like difficult artists. And this has been great to work with, all of them. We've done the installation at the Fondazione Levi. And so one of the things that we thought about, and I can tell you this, is the location in Venice. Our insistence is not to marginalize Africa within Venice. You see, because we couldn't get a space. Harald Zeman was adamant about not giving us a space within the Arsenali or others. And we said, fine. Uh, so we managed to get a place across from the academia, you know, next to the academia bridge yes. and then the conservatoire of music. So I thought location is also important. You don't want to put Africa at the end of a cheap place that is easy to rent and yes. somewhere outside Venice or in a location where it's difficult. The place we were very lucky with the collaboration of the Fondazioni Quirini Stampalia. They were really great people who helped us there. And they were really, that is, 
One of them, I'll never forget her, Chiara Bertola, who still worked there. Some of us who helped us, and I always like to remember this, is also, you know, Heriberto Ulisi, who's just a young Venetian who studied African art. So, and you know, Venice is very difficult to work with. You remember, but this is an ancient trading host. So it's full of businessmen and hustlers and and many other things. So it's not an easy place, but having Venetians helping you with this helps a great deal. It's really, you have to think strategically. You have to think about the strengths of the work, but you also have to think about the artists and what they bring. And I can tell you just one story to end this, is that the, I think below us, there was another, I think an East European venue in the same building. And I remember there was this group of, people who, and I was standing near the, the entrance to the building, and this group of people, among them a lady that finished looking at, at our exhibit, and then walking out, she said, I'm looking for the African exhibit. I said, you just came out of it. I said, this is African exhibit? So that was my revenge, and that was my uh, vindication. <laughs> Because she came, or this group came to the to the place expecting something different. Yes. And then they found something with a level of sophistication that they always associate, video work, installation, conceptual, they always associate with European art, Western art, and never really with African art. I said, I can't correct her more. I said, yes, it is the African. But for me, that was the vindication of that project. I love it. I love it. And I saw that show and was so taken by the work um, that I include that I invited Bernie Serrell to come and do a solo exhibition at the Berkeley Art Museum. So that exhibition directly influenced my curatorial career and, and work as well. So thank you for that. Well, thank you because this is this the affinities and, and the the and the ephemeral, as you call it, impact or or the hidden stories that you'll never be aware of unless you meet people like you to know. Okay, well, that was wonderful to hear. Yes. Uh, as I learned from others too. Yeah. It's so nice because as you said, often we create these exhibitions, write these books, put them in the world, and you don't know who's seen them or read them. And you don't know then what the kind of butterfly effect is of, of the work that you do. So I'd love to end by asking you about the Africa Institute in Sharjah, which is being built right now and designed by David Ajay. And I think sounds like a, an incredible pinnacle of, of the work that you've, that you've done up to this time and certainly an incredible insight into what you might be doing moving forward. The Africa Institute, just to give you a quick idea about the, be the beginning of it, because people often ask me, why an Africa Institute in the Gulf? Why in charge yeah. of all the places? <laughs> My answer is sarcastically and actually seriously, why not? Because if Ithaca in the boondocks of Western <laughs> Upper, <laughs> in the boondock of, of Upper Upstate New York, that you can have an African studies or in the suburb of Chicago, Illinois, where you have Northwestern University or Indiana of all the places. These are places, UCLA, these are places that have African studies. So why not build something in the Gulf? Why not? But there is a history to that. There is The history is that there was a conference in 1976 
about Afro-Arab relations at the time of those solidarity in the decolonization era. And it was, you know, called for by Sheikh Dr. Sultan, who is the ruler of Sharjah now, invited three actually Sudanese artists. I'm, as I told you, I'm originally from Sudan. Yusuf Fadl Hassan, Jamal Muhammad Ahmed, and Muhammad Omar Bashir. These are people who are very well-known scholars in the African and writers in the African studies field. And they're the one who commissioned to organize this. So they did that. There was a history to it also that there are several of these people, like Yusuf Fadl was a founding director of the Sharjah University. But really, it's the interest of the uh, ruler of Sharjah, who's a scholar, in that kind of conference that brought all these scholars, about 45, among them very well-known, Ali Mazroi, the late Ali Mazroi, the late Hisham Sharabi, who's a very well-known Palestinian scholar from Georgetown, Abdullah Al-Arawi, a great Moroccan uh, you know, historian and a, and a philosopher. And, and many people now are very big, but at the time, it's interestingly that you look at the record and videos of that conference, you see young, vibrant African and Arab sitting there discussing even difficult issues like slavery, like you know, solidarity between uh, African Arab in the decolonization era and so forth. And so th- that was the conference that ended up with this recommendation of actually creating an African Studies Institute. So fast forward more than 40 years, I happened to be working with uh, Hur al-Qasimi, the head of the uh, Sharjah Foundation, who also had the same idea of trying to establish the African. So I was invited and I wrote a proposal and uh, established. So that's the history, my own personal history with this project. But I headed, of course, the African Studies uh, at Cornell, African Studies, it has been my field. and. And I was glad that I was entrusted with this project. Wrote the concept, and it is basically what's now happening at the uh, level of practice. And then came the idea of inviting an an architect who is also an African, like David Ajay. We thought this is going to be a symbolically very important monument too. We wanted to be there, just at the architecture level too, to add something to the architecture of of, of Sharjah itself. It's basically an 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 postgraduate studies in humanities and in um, social sciences. It's a master's degree in both and a PhD in both. Uh, Of course, we're not going to cover everything. We're going to be mindful of the locale, which is that place. That's a meeting place. In fact, actually, if you think about Sharjah and the Gulf, it's uh, very well connected to either ancient trade, migration of people. In fact, maybe the early humans migrating from East Africa Definitely, archaeologically, it's proven that they settled in that area. It was the Red Sea. It was very shallow and and easy to cross and then populated the whole world. So there's also the political, the history of slavery, history of even recent migration and labor and so forth. But there's the history of the Omani Empire in Zanzibar, East Africa, the Swahili coast, all of those, the link with the Indian Ocean Rim. So the the location makes it very interesting. But to tell you the truth, if I've been asked why, I would say, you know, this is an opportunity to create an African studies that think of Africa globally, not in the way that is the colonial tropes of African studies that divide it into North Africa as less authentically African or, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, all of these things that I call it within African studies as the darkest Africa syndrome, because that was the idea that's prevalent, this kind of artificial boundaries, not realizing that there have been history of migration, Islam in West Africa, East Africa. You cannot talk about a pure Africa anymore 
You have to talk about it globally. And so it's an opportunity to transcend all the colonial trope within African studies, to create something new, not burdened by any institutional memory or institutional restrictions. To give you just one example, you enter many of the American universities where there's a history of African studies, and African studies in many universities was part of area studies. He was very well entrenched into national defense strategies of studying others, and then, you know, to control them, knowledge and power, you know, kind of model, which is what the origin of Africa area studies, whether it's Middle Eastern, African studies, or Soviet studies, as they used to call it also, before the disintegration of the Soviet Union, Asian studies, all of it in the United States were connected to area studies. But then you find in these same institutions, Black studies, Africana studies, which is basically rooted in a decolonization or liberation or independence or black power, you call it a civil rights, are totally different models. One is populated by mostly white scholars, the other mostly black scholars. So this is a chance to think about African studies separately, to think about it globally, which is borrowing actually from the Africana model, to think about the whole thing. So it's an opportunity also to create a cutting edge type type of African studies. And then one major mission actually, it's not a matter of philanthropy. The West is closing its border. The West is growing more and more xenophobic. It takes ages to even get a permission to get a visa for, for any African students uh, or non-American student. All of the, I mean, we accept students now at Cornell and they suffer to get a visa to come. Yeah. And then you have on the other side, oh, the internationalization of, of the American university. But then you have these restrictions. This is an opportunity to train politically, yes, to train a new generation of Africans based in the continent who will have opportunities. Of course, the, the institute is open. But for us, that's the chance to kind of invigorate, you know, revitalize African studies and also opening it up to a new generation, because we really, our major goal is to have a new generation of African scholars, African or not, is open to everyone, who are critical, who are well-trained theoretically. And you see this, you know, there is a disparity in knowledge production. There is a disparity in access to information. The U.S. has great universities. I'm lucky to be here and benefit from that in major research institutions. But then Access to journals, all of those things are not there. And we tend, we are really aiming towards having, beyond the symbolic politics, really having that access to knowledge and providing it for others. And, and we will do our best. So it's a place for training. It's also documentation and research. We have a library within that building and archives. Of course, we're not going to reproduce what already exists. We will try to create a niche and to address areas within African studies that are possible. Well, we will, practically, we're going through licensing and accreditation. We will, we started hiring faculty. We've managed to have now up to close to 14 faculty joining us. Amazing. If you look at our website, we also established on the road to build this institution, we established scholarships, fellowships for senior scholars and postdocs. We have one named after Ali Mazroy, who was major in the conference in 19, uh, an Africanist. We have one named after Fatima Marinisi, a very well-known Moroccan feminist. We also one uh, named after Okwi. We have mm. fellowship for writers, creative writers, named after Tejmula Olanyan. We have 
translation fellowships also because we have a division of African languages also and translation. So we're gonna also teach African languages to undergrad, even though it's a graduate studies, but we will have that available as a service to UAE and other even European-based institutions. We already mm -hmm. hired people in that. So we started this kind of research project, but we also have publications. We have also, at least now, one referee journal. We started collaboration with Duke University on that, a journal that think about Africa and the Indian Ocean Rim, it's called Monsoon. So there were so many projects. And then we started this Africa-focused, country-focused seasons. We did one on Ethiopia. The second one is on Ghana. That's unfolding now. And our next one really is on the Indian Ocean islands that are part of the continent, but also in relation to the Indian Ocean and, and the season. These are partly to produce publication, but also an outreach. And the season we called uh, Thinking the Archipelago, Africa's Indian Ocean Island. And that's really after the um, Martinican philosophy Edouard Glissot, in thinking about his ideas that we have to think about the world as islands and archipelago rather than continental. So he was really against continental thinking that produced this kind of ethnocentric nationalist type of, or ethno-nationalist type of like Europe, you know, Africa, North America, things like that. And he wanted to think about the poor world in relations. That's the, actually what inspired us, is that we often think about continental Africa, because that opened up the, the road to and the horizon to thinking globally about Africa on the other side, not only the Atlantic diaspora, Sulislavin, but it's also the Indian Ocean diaspora. So these are now our season. So we choose a country that has an interesting history, that has an interesting politics, that has an interesting cultural production or knowledge production, and then take it to uh, another level. For example, in thinking about Ghana, Nkrumah's ideas are very important. Kwame Nkrumah was the leader of independence of Ghana, who actually studied in the United States, was very close friend with uh, Dubois. And as you know, that Dubois was buried actually, and there's a center for him when he was facing all this McCarthyism in the United States, that's where he went and, and died and buried there. So th that connection, think about the Black Star, the return to Africa, Ghana as global, uh, the significance of his independence. So we take these as examples of themes that will help us kind of produce knowledge, but also provide an outreach to countries through focused you know, seasons. This will go, of course, along with other projects. I hope I'm not uh, uh, digressing too much here. And, no, it's, uh, it's The questions it's are thick. They are. The questions are thick. That's a good way of saying it. I am so grateful for your time today and the opportunity to hear all the different ways that our interests and our paths have connected without us actually have, having spoken in person. So I've been an admirer of your work. It's been at a distance, so I'm grateful for this time with you today and very much look forward to being able to connect in person and to continue to experience what you're offering the world. It's really important and I'm very grateful. Thank you so much, but I wanted to say something just as an ending not in an opportunistic way, but <laughs> gladly to share this, is that 
there's a project that I'm working on with Ahur Al-Qasimi as a co-curator and people who collaborated on this, which is the uh, an, an exhibition by the Sudanese pioneer painter, modernist Kamal Ibrahim Ishaq. That would be another major project for us in, in the U.S. And it's a collaboration between the Sharjah Art Foundation and the Africa Institute. So this show is going to be at the Serpentine, and it's a retrospective of Kamal Ishaq. The whole project initiated in Sharjah, but it's traveling now to the Serpentine, and the opening is on October Six. So hopefully your audience, listeners to your pod- podcast, will know about this. And it's, a, it's a major step in, re- in recognition, recognition of Kamala, who is a very well-known conceptualist. He's a painter who was one of the group that initiated what we call it the crystallist movement in Sudan with some of our students. But she's also beyond that. I've done a lot of work and continue to be active. Hopefully we see you at that show. Thank you really for the opportunity and it's glad, you know, and I hope we continue and I hope you visit us in Sharjah. I would love it. I would love it. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Hassan. It is so interesting to me to hear about people's practices and I think he's done really a remarkable job of combining a long-term academic career with curatorial practice, exhibition making, writing articles and books. And he's had a real impact on the way I personally understand art. And I'm grateful for his time today. Please join me next time as the guest on my podcast will be the philanthropist, entrepreneur, and collector of contemporary art, Ella Fontenot Cisneros. She has amassed an incredible collection of 2,500 works that is international in its profile, has a focus on Latin American art. She and I discuss spirituality. We discuss museum decision-making and legacy and how personal decisions are made. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being a part of our community.